feel like that's sufficiently spooky. Hmm. I've got the goose pimples. <laughs> you good over there, John? Indeed, I am. How about you, Josh? I'm scared. Let's uh, let's bring this in. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Chromecast. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. I am Jonathan. And you are joining us for, I guess at this point, it's our second episode for our 2018 Chromtober extravaganza. This is the, the month of October. It's one of our favorite holidays, if not the most favorite holiday amongst the three of us. Uh, we're going to talk about witches yet again. And uh, we're getting, we're staying spooky. It's the Chromtober uh, Spooktacular 2 Electric Witchaloo. <laughs> There are pumpkins everywhere and crows. I don't know. What are other spooky things? <laughs> it's just pumpkins and crows and witches. Pumpkins and crows everywhere. <laughs> uh, black cats. Skeletons. Yeah, yeah. Corpses. Corpses. It's pretty spooky. <laughs> Student debt. Yeah. Student That's debt. the scariest yes. of all. Uh, political debates with your family. <laughs> Tis almost the season. <laughs> Uh, uh, so we are talking about a story by a brand new author to the Chromecast tonight. We're going to talk about Dorothy quick, which I'm really looking forward to talking about. Yeah, this was a, this was a fun story. There's some, there's some really cool angles to this. And I think it's a, uh, I think it's one of those onions. There's a lot of layers here that we can get into. I don't know if we'll, if we'll peel them all back, but there's good material that will keep us talking, I think for, for some time tonight. I think so. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hit the hit the the standard notes on the front end of the show. What are you drinking, John? I am going with the theme of tonight, and I had some Earl Grey tea since we're doing kind of an Irish tale. Oh, I went with some tea. Nice. Yeah. Nice. How about nice. you, fellas? Well, you've got some stout there, don't you? So it is actually it's a it's a it's a nut brown ale. So mm. we have here. Uh, uh, White Squirrels Nut Brown Ale, and I think White Squirrel Brewery is in uh, Western Kentucky. Maybe it's in Bowling Green. I'll look that up here. Okay, but that's what we are drinking. It's good. It's nutty here. Yeah, I like it. Uh, a lot, it's a man. deep, rich color. It's got a, a nice foamy head to it. Yeah, um, and it's smooth, and it tastes a little bit like it was uh on nitrous instead of carbonated yeah it's uh it's it's straight out the 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 standard tap at, at, at country boy or not country boy i'm sorry dreaming creek brewery which is the 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 local brewery where uh in the the town where i teach and it is uh again it's it's from western kentucky this this brewery but it's one of the the extra uh things that they had on tap beyond their own stuff. And I hadn't had it before. I've had some of the other uh, white squirrel offerings and I like them, but, but this one I think is about my favorite. It's, I, I don't know. I'm a big fan of the nut brown ales. They, I like hoppier stuff too, but there's just something about a, a, a straight up malty, just tasty, like brown ale like this. You can, you just want to hunker down in a hoodie and like eat a truncheon of stew or something. Which is what I'm doing. <laughs> it's good. It's lip smacking good. Yeah. I'd say. And then, uh, Josh, you brought some other stuff too, right? I got some Sam's, some Sammy Adams. Yeah. Oktoberfest. We got that. We've got a little bit of a new riff bourbon. If we, if we run out of beers, we can, uh, maybe take a little snort of that. But, but I think that'll, that'll keep us good for the, 
the next little bit and hopefully we don't get too cold because it is fall for the nonce it just became fall in kentucky yeah like like what four or five days ago uh this past weekend yeah uh the weekend before it was 90 degrees and (laughs) today the high was 50 and it was overcast and it was spooky and there were leaves kind of rustling in the wind it's good stuff perfect we had two to three inches of snow in nebraska recently <laughs> that is that is bonkers you sent me that it picture was. and i couldn't believe yeah. it yeah the pumpkins that i have on the porch luke were covered in snow oh man yeah <laughs> that's cool this is weathercast uh <laughs> up next cold fronts are they real or are they fake <laughs> hurricanes scary Hur- <laughs> or well, terrifying so so while we're really quickly so and this isn't my one thing uh but there's a, another cool podcast that's out there that I would encourage folks to, to get into. It's called Weird Studies. I can't remember who the two hosts are. They have to be like uh, like English, English professors or uh, uh, folks that are engaged in like the social sciences and weird studies. I mean, it is very literary. Every episode that I've listened to thus far, and I haven't listened to like a crazy number, but they have involved central discussions of not only Lovecraft, but also Philip K. Dick. I get the, the feeling that at least one of the two hosts is super into uh, Philip K. Dick as a, as a, as a writer of the weird. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> to bring this to the, to the point here, the episode that I was listening to this past weekend while I mowed the yard, they were talking about uh, the opening paragraph of Narlathotep, like Lovecraft's Narlathotep, and talking about how that first paragraph is so uh, prescient and and makes sense in 2018, and gets at the the multitudes of unrest that the the world is going through, whether it's like environmental unrest and weirdness of the climate, civil unrest and weirdness of the social like the social sort of ramifications of everything that's going on, and they talk about global. Uh, not global warming, but global weirding as a concept. And I hadn't heard that term in the literature before, but it is absolutely like apt. And, and I think, I think 2018 we're, this is global weirding, man. This is where we're at is a, (laughs) is a, is a bonkers kind of world. And it's just, you know, it was 90 degrees last week and now it's fall finally. Right. Like it's, it's all, it's all funked up. It's abrupt. Black Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe I just burn my one thing. Let's go ahead and do the cue the cue the cue one the thing, and we'll we'll do that. John, I saw you over there through my video. You were getting into the right headspace, dude. That's right. Spook time. <laughs> Spook time. You, you were at a spooky rave there for a second. Spook time, I was, y'all. I was I thought, feeling it. It I, was coming through me like a ghost. I thought you were about to lose your, your sweatshirt or something. 
<laughs> Either that or you were turning into a bandit, bandit like pulling it up over your nose and Oh, no. I just didn't want the ghost to escape through my mouth. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, John, what's your one thing? My one thing. Uh, I was going to go with the Halloween remix of the classic song Baby Shark since I've heard it about 900 <laughs> times in the last 48 hours. But I think I'm going to go with a book I've been reading, which is Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. I don't know if either of you have read it, but he was one of the first people to kind of put forth in a book form this idea that perhaps humans came from space aliens tampering with the still hot embers of life on planet earth. And it's pretty bonkers. It's spooky to me because aliens are scary, as I've said many times on the podcast, but, uh, it, I, I want you two to read it if you never have, just so you can agree with me about this weird pseudoscientist's insistence that he is a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) So John, I got to ask how, like what kind of copy do you have of that book? Cause the only way I've seen it is like the trashed out, like, like paperback. That's like nearly got the cover ripped off. That's what I'm envisioning too. Yeah. Pretty much that, uh, it was $2 at half price and it's, uh, it's an old trade paperback with like really bold red letters on the Uh front chariots of the gods. And yeah, it's very tricked out. That's it awesome. even has that old book smell still. <laughs> cool, yeah. cool. I, I'm holding out for, like, I still haven't found a copy of that, or, like, I'm, I want to find a copy of, like, The Golden Bow and a couple other, like, the, what's the other one about, like, uh, The Witch Cult? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the guy that has the, the book about uh, being abducted. I can't remember the the author of that that's oh like, where him and like his lumberjack buddies get abducted uh, that one but then the, there's another one like there's a handful of those like 70s 80s and even i yeah. guess chariot of the garden gods is like even older right it's like 50s yeah. or 60s like I, I love that there's these almost decadal like cheese paperbacks of like pseudosciency uh like spooky stuff i, I yeah <laughs> i'm that's a that's a cool library find for sure have you read it like cover to cover? Is that the kind of thing? Or are you working through it now? I'm working through it. And I got to be honest, it's very short, but it is hard to read because he's he puts forth a lot of very circular arguments. And so you're kind of just chasing this guy's tail with him a lot of the time. Uh, so it's been a slow read, but I enjoy it just to see these crazy thoughts and to see the, something that inspired a lot of people. For example, Jack Kirby was kind of interested in this idea. So that's kind of why I'm interested in reading it. So is the idea that uh, aliens came to Earth and kickstarted life or kickstarted civilization or somewhere in, in between? In his book, it's more about kickstarting civilization. Like okay. they rode into town in their super cool spaceships. And if you ever want to read a description of it, just read Ezekiel's description of seeing UFOs, apparently. In okay. the book of Ezekiel. And they mated with people and made God kings that ruled for thousands of years and helped build the pyramids. It's it's pretty far out, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a lot of stuff about cave drawings with people with space helmets on. Right. And he's got the black and white pictures in the middle of the book. You know how uh-huh, uh-huh, you do. Yeah. yeah. And there's cave drawings of astronauts and things like that. And he draws some very wide conclusions from them. But <laughs> I I enjoy it without believing in it, I guess, uh, is what I would say. So if you ever get a chance, check it out. 
that's my one thing. And I'm going to pick Josh to go next. Okay. Um, since you mentioned the book of Ezekiel, my one thing is biblical. It's biblical, y'all. Uh, it is a podcast by friend of the show, friend of us, uh, Benito Serino, and his pal Chris Sims. Both of these guys are writers, um, comic book writers specifically. And they do a podcast called Apocrypals, wherein they read through various books of the Bible and discuss them from a, um, a historical perspective as well as a sort of religious perspective and sort of through the lens of, uh, of, of being an atheist. Cause I think both of these guys, I, I don't want to describe them as atheist, I guess. I, I'm not sure how they would describe themselves, but they're, they say that they are non-believers. So we'll just go with that word. Um, and, and so Benito and Chris sort of dive into these, uh, various books of the Bible and, and just dissect them. It, it's very good stuff. Uh, it's often humorous um, without being irreverent, I think. They, they do a good job of kind of walking that tightrope, and I'm certain that some people would be offended by this given the content that they're discussing. But at the same time, I think for for me at least, like I, I have never read the entire Bible cover to cover. So yeah, it, it's a it's a cool podcast. Y'all should check it out. Uh, the hosts are funny and charming, and the content is very interesting. I've seen it on Tumblr a few times. I've always wanted to check it out, and now that you have recommended it, I know it's safe to listen to. Yeah, it's good stuff. Cool. Uh, I guess and there was one. There's one. I mean, I've already I've already burnt one. I'm going to go ahead, and I've, I I have I have this book that I brought up here upstairs. So I'm going to talk about the book real quick. I, I know I already mentioned the uh, the Weird Studies podcast, and I just pulled this up on my podcatcher just in terms of the the host because they do it, it's worth name dropping them. Phil Ford and JF Martell are the two dudes that do the uh, the Weird Studies podcast, and we'll provide a link for that in the show notes. But as far as the one thing that I that I had prepared, uh, it's a book. It's a it's a horror anthology. I've been reading through. Uh, a variety of the stories over the past uh, week or so. It's called Hauntings, Tales of the Supernatural, and it's edited by Henry Mazio. Uh, and it also has some pretty uh, kick-butt drawings by <laughs> Edward Gorey throughout the throughout the, uh, the book. But it's an older uh, horror anthology, one of those that you, know, you can find various places. It's from like 1968. Uh, there's a Lovecraft story in the vault that's in here. There's a, a, a Robert Block story. There's a Manly Wade Wellman story. And Ooh. I read that one uh, as well as an M.R. James story, as well as a couple other authors that I hadn't ever encountered. John Collier, uh, Joseph Payne Brennan, and uh, oh, and then I read an E.F. Benson story so far. But there's there's a whole slew of other people in here, including like Robert Aikman, Alfred Noyes, uh, uh William Hope Hodgson, uh, August Derleth. There's, I mean, names, of course, that you recognize. It's it's a lot of gothic, like, haunted house-type stories and, and sort of slow-burn, weirdy-weird type stuff. It's really good, uh, and just, you know, it's the right season to be picking up a horror anthology and reading some short stories. So that was the one that I, that I brought up here with me. That's cool. That's a good collection, at cool. least from the names. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really solid stuff, man. I'm... 
I'm excited. I have like three different books <laughs> all going right now. Uh, but this one, at least I can sit down and spend 20 minutes and burn through a story, yeah. you know, to get to. Have you, speaking of haunted houses, have you seen or watched or heard anything about the Haunting of Hill House series on Netflix? I have not. I know it dropped. I saw it on the Netflix feed, but I haven't I haven't heard anything about it. Uh, the trailer gave me the heebie-jeebies. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And uh, our buddy Evil Ed watched it. I guess it's six episodes, maybe. It's it's fairly short. Okay. Um, and he dug it, I cool. think. Yeah. So there's some bonus things. Put them all together. That's a whole bunch of things. We'll simplify it and call it one thing. Sweet way to do that, dude. I like it. Dope production skills. You got the index finger ready to just like <laughs> tapity tap. That's right. You're there. John, Johnny Wolfenstein is alive in me. <laughs> uh, okay, guys. So let's go ahead and move into uh, the the real deal content here. We're recording. We're we're, we're doing it live. Uh, we've got. <laughs> <laughs> a story to talk about here tonight. It's The Witch's Mark. It's by Dorothy Quick. This is a Weird Tales joint. It came out, I have here, in January of 38. Seems uh, right. We haven't read any of Dorothy Quick's materials before, but she is a woman that is uh, well-known in terms of her content, uh, like just in terms of a byline, but you don't hear much about her as a as like a not- no- notorious figure within the field. I had never heard of her before we started looking for pulp witch stories. Um, and we came across the witch's mark. Um, had you guys? Mm-mm. Nope. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it seems that, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Robert E. Howard, of course, but Clark Ashton Smith, um, HP uh, uh, Lovecraft, and, you know, to a lesser extent, we've we've at least mentioned Seabury Quinn, mainly Wade Wellman, like the, these guys form the core of weird tales. And there are there are others, of course. But the further you get away from that core, it seems the the knowledge, the, the common knowledge of the contributors to weird tales kind of falls out rapidly. And in doing research about Dorothy Quick, I found that it was really hard to to glean anything about her life. Um, she's not well-researched. Uh, there's just not a lot of scholarship about her and her writings and her life. Uh, but we do know, know some stuff, right? And we, I think we mentioned maybe, I don't know if it got edited out last time, but the association that she had with uh, Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she apparently was at a young age someone that, uh, was an acquaintance of Twain, and I guess he had a. Uh, how do I want to say this? Uh, a club. A, a club, yeah, a, a club. A of, cadre. A cadre of young young people, and specifically young girls that he, uh, I guess, took inspiration from and really enjoyed being with. And I, I'm, I'm trying my best not to it's, make this sound pervy. It's, but hard, it's hard not hard to. Not yeah. to. Uh, right. But at least. And I don't know the the ins and outs of this, but at least from what I've read, it seems like it was something that was grounded at least in in people's remarks as being uh, legitimate and innocent. And, in, and yeah, yeah, that's the right word. Yeah, and sort of it was Twain's sort of attempt to, at least from what I've gleaned, uh, sort of. 
adopt these girls as surrogate grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. Reading here, and I'm quoting from todayifoundout.com, it says, in the early 1900s, Clemens fell into a deep depression and noted that while he had reached the grandfather stage of life, he had no grandchildren to keep him company. His daughter Susie had died in 1896, and his wife Olivia had passed away in 1904, followed by a second daughter, Jean, in 1909. So he went about befriending young girls who he treated as surrogate granddaughters, which no doubt to us as modern cynical type people sounds very creepy and kind of out there. But as far as I've read as well, it sounds like he just did this because he wanted to be nice to young, innocent people. And Dorothy herself wrote uh, like an autobiography type text on this right yeah she did she wrote a book and i don't have the title of it in front of me um but it was uh, i think mostly about her time with um mark twain i almost said mark finn (laughs) um that would be a different book so uh yeah and that book was actually adapted into a made for tv movie that aired on the disney channel back in the early 90s so so that's like I think that's the major factoid about this character that or this character, this woman, like this, this author, that's, that seems to be the most common element to talk about. I will say like, I poked around on a books today over lunch to try to see like, if you could find any of her texts and at least the novel that she published that's out there, you can't find there's, there were only two copies available on a books at the time of this recording. And the cheapest one was like $175. So, uh, a lot of her written work is is fairly expensive. That mm-hmm. biographical piece, though, you could find everywhere for like four bucks. Okay. Like that's the thing that's most readily available for her. But I think also you can come across a variety of her works in some of the the pulp fiction mega packs. A lot of the digital sort of bundles of of the weird tales and just pulp materials that you can get for Kindle these days on Amazon. Uh, you can find a lot of her stuff that way. Yeah. So knowing that, knowing that if you do a quick search, (laughs) a quick search on Dorothy quick, you find uh, at least at first her association with Mark Twain. Let's talk a little bit more about her as an author. Um, And I was able to find some really cool stuff about her from the tellers of weird tales blog, Luke. Um, and and you met that guy, Terrence. Yeah, Terrence Hanley is yeah. is awesome. We've we've met him at a couple of the different like horror conventions here in in Lexington, and he's a he's a righteous dude. I I haven't talked we haven't talked to him. It's been a few years since we saw him, uh, but when we were having communications with him, probably a couple of years before the Chromecast started, he was someone that we knew that did like weird, uh, cryptid art and was just really into <laughs> the scene. Little did we know that he was cranking along and like that tellers of weird tales blog really is a treasure trove of information about totally uh, authors and illustrators and and a lot of the the real world uh, stories behind the the peoples, the tellers of, of weird tales magazine. And so from there, I was able to glean that uh, Dorothy Quick was the most prolific uh, female weird tales poet. Um, she was able to publish 25 poems in weird tales and let's talk about people who publish poetry in weird tales. Um, probably you would guess first who John, 
Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard is one of the top five. Who else? Mr. Lovecraft. Mr. Lovecraft is number one. Okay. And who else? Clark Ashton Smith. You're right. Clark Ashton Smith is number two. H.P. Lovecraft published 43 poems. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith had 40. Robert E. Howard had 35. And then number four is Dorothy Quick. Oh, cool. Okay. So she was no slouch. Um, and just talking about her pulp fiction, uh, uh, her weird tales publications sort of shortchanges her because she was able to publish several novels. And Luke alluded to uh, one of those that he was able to track down on weird tales, but she actually was able to publish uh, a number of them. So she was very prolific and very active in writing uh, during her life. So she was born in 1896. She passed away in 1962. Okay. Yeah. And so as far as like, I looked up the, the science fiction database. I don't know if you guys have ever poked around on that website, but if you're inevitably, if you are looking for the bibliography of, of one of these like genre writers, you can get linked up to that page and similar to the Howard works page. It's a great repository for figuring all, figuring out all of the various iterations and publication history of an author. And so in Quick's uh, instance, I found like that novel, and I did the quick query on Abe Books just because I was curious to see how, <laughs> like, how rare is it? Given that you, I've, I hadn't seen her her stuff popping up anywhere like in person, and it wasn't a name that we were familiar with before we started putting this episode together. Uh, it seems like a lot of her stuff is in those primary pulps, and I'm sure it's been collected here and there. But it's not the kind of thing it seems to me that unless I'm wrong and somebody can point it out if, if that's the case, but you know, with CL Moore, you can go pick up her, uh, like drill of jewelry stories in a variety right. of fashions. And you can do the same thing with her, uh, uh, North. Uh, oh yeah. Northwest Smith, Northwest Smith materials. Like you can pick up those collections and you can get the best of CL Moore, but I don't know if there's materials like that for Dorothy quick. I, and I don't think there are, which is really a shame. Um, so speaking of C.L. Moore, in, in thinking about the number of stories that Quick was able to publish in Weird Tales, um, she published 15 stories okay. in, in Weird Tales. And that sort of uh, shortchanges her pulp output because she also published in Unknown and Astounding. Right. But um, she was able to get 15 stories. C.L. Moore had 16 stories in weird tales. Wow. So, so okay. they're neck and neck with each other in terms of their production and output. Cool. Um, and it makes me wonder, you know, did, did the content in CL Moore's stories just resonate better with readers? Um, or did CL Moore have an advantage because she was married to Henry Kuttner and, and he was also a writer and an editor and they worked in tandem a lot Right. You know, um, it. I don't know. I, I really have been thinking a lot about Dorothy Quick today and and wondering why she isn't one of the household Weird Tales names. And I guess it's worth pointing out, too, at least in the case of C.L. Moore. I mean, while we appreciate that, that she was a woman that was married to Kuttner and they had this sort of like, what's the right word? Like simpatico or back and forth that they were able to do and they were writing one another's materials uh, ghostwriting and that kind of thing. Dorothy Quick, at least here, as far as the byline, like what we're seeing here in the Weird Tales 
uh, reprint that we have. It says The Witch's Mark by Dorothy Quick. There's no mistaking that this was written by a woman in 1938. And I don't know uh, how that might have flavored things. Uh, I mean, I think C.L. Moore was, of course, found throughout the scene throughout later years, like the 50s and the 60s. She was a mainstay of that. But uh, when a lot of that active, like in the pulp publishing was happening, maybe that was less known. I don't know. It's just something to think about, too. Well, uh, from that same uh, Tellers of Weird Tales blog, um, so uh, he is citing a, a person named Eric Leaf Davin here. Um, he says Davin counted 127 writers he considered identifiable as women who contributed prose fiction to weird tales, uh, about 17% of the total number of writers for the magazine. According to his count, there were 2,712 stories printed in weird tales between 1923 and 1954 writers identifiable as women were responsible for 365 of those works or about 13.5% of the total. Wow. Okay. So not a huge amount so, of the output, but sizable. Like, so one out of 10, though, mm-hmm. like 10%. I mean, 13% properly, but yeah. one out of 10 is a good summarization of it. Sort of. Yeah. Uh, you know, during the the 1930s. And that mm-hmm. that is just the, uh, the fiction, the prose fiction. If you count the poetry, um, 63 poets identifiable as women or 40% of the total number of poets who contributed to Weird Tales. Uh, he says the unique magazine published 575 poems of which 170 were written by poets identifiable as women or about 30% of the total output. So, um, I guess to summarize, uh, women were active in publishing in weird tales. Um, their output was, uh, quite a bit less than the male authors at the time. I'm, I I feel like I dropped a lot of no, I mean, <laughs> a lot I th- of data right there, and I think that blog post, which which we will link in the uh, show notes, has a lot of fodder for discussion. Not only is it uh, data driven, but I mean it's it's just a treasure trove of names right. of different uh, women poets and uh, prose fiction writers that you've never heard of. Yeah. And the, the pause there, I mean, in my mind, I was just thinking about that's, that's still the common, like consistent issue, right? Like here in the, the past, well, basically about the time that we started our podcast, maybe a few years before that, like in the, the, the teens of the new millennium, like that's something that has become a really common item of discussion within the the weird fiction the genre fiction the pulp fiction speculative fiction scene the the issue of authorship so it's it's been a problem but this is it's cool that we're able to talk about this story and i mean really guys we haven't read a whole lot of seal more for the story or, or i'm sorry for the show uh I've, I've i love her stuff but i i i'm really loving what i got here with this specific story by dorothy quick and if this is consistent with some of her other writing. And it seems like maybe in terms of themes or symbols that she tends to use just with what I know from one of the covers of another story, this is 
this is cool stuff. There's, <laughs> there's, there's a couple different uh, items here that I wanted to to bring up for us to talk about, and I know you guys also have have points also. But in terms of a quick synopsis of the the story at hand, do you, one of you guys have something like prepared, or maybe you can do a quick talk through of it? Sure. So in this story, we've got Seamus, who is an author of some renown, but mostly he's kind of a handsome dude, and he's <laughs> friends with a guy named Jim. Jim convinces him that he should marry their friend Trudy, which seems like a relatively quick and simple procedure in the telling of the story. And he goes to propose at a party and he meets a bewitching woman known as Cecily. Am I correct? That's how I pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. He meets Cecily, who is very haunting. She has a perfume that kind of envelops him. She's a beautiful woman. And he sees her three times, and each time he falls more in love with her but becomes more horrified by her. And it pretty much turns out that through the centuries, this is a witch that has pursued him to gain his soul through a second kiss. And there's a story of tragic love that involves him and Trudy, where Trudy is actually Deidre, or Deidre who is a princess from Ireland. And he was a farm boy, that, and they fell in love. And through a series of sort of tragic curses, they've been separated for a long time. And their love can conquer the witch, but they have to find one another and all this magic. And eventually that's what happens. And the witch is defeated. Good synopsis. There's there's uh, a mix of uh, reincarnation, ancestral memories, uh, tropes that we see within howard's materials and other weird fiction writers that we've talked about but there's also an emphasis on like love conquering all and you know it has a happy ending which is kind of cool but it also <laughs> has like a little a little stinger which i really like too but maybe we can talk about that uh <laughs> yeah at, at the end too I guess one of the things that I would say that I enjoyed most about this story is this ancestral memory part. As you mentioned, this is a recurring theme in some of the Weird Tales material that we've covered. And I find this interesting, this fascination that people had seemingly in the early 20s, 30s, 40s of there was something locked away in our brains that if we could just remember it, we could unlock the mysteries of the past. And I think it's interesting that it kind of pervaded this weird fiction realm. I didn't know, have you guys ever thought about that or kind of wondered about why that was? Why the ancestral knowledge trope kind of is rampant or, or common in weird tales? Yeah, or, or just like, why is it that that's something that captivates us? And I mean, still does to this day a little bit, I think. Maybe not as much as it did then, but it seemed like something that was very powerful to people at the time. It's primal. It's That's it's, true. It's something that you that connects you to those generations that came prior to you all the Mm. way back right from from your grandparents to your great-grandparents to generations so far removed that you wouldn't recognize them and good point i i think it's something that is uh both uh scientific at least pseudo-scientific right Mm -hmm. and mystical i think it also seems very desperately american of us uh, we are all okay. kind of confused in some ways about our heritage or where we came from. And so oh, that's a good point. maybe that's part of it too. That's a good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way, but, but yeah, when you, when, when you guys think about your ancestry, do you, 
do you know where your families hail from? Sort of, but not as precisely as perhaps people in other nations might. Yeah, same. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I know hints and glimmers, but not a lot. I, I know there are people in my family that have done extensive genealogies, but I am not very familiar with them. I guess my grandmother on my maternal side is about the extent of what I truly know. But yeah. outside of that, <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. say it's a bla- it's it's a it's an unknown black box, but uh, it's more hand wavy and German or Irish, right? Like those right. kinds of statements, and not <laughs> right. like, oh yeah, these people came from the old land at such and such date. And really, the only timestamp that I can put on that is what like one eighth of my <laughs> grandparent lineage. Uh, so yeah, that's <laughs> 12 and a half percent is, is all I can claim is with, with an assured sort of statement. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point. I mean, there's definitely a need for identity, uh, that comes up across these stories. And also they were all reading one another's work, uh, and yes, they sure. was feeding into it too, but it's, it's cool how this is like a mythic love story and there's nods to like H Ryder Haggard's she within the story and the power of like the feminine wild of Aisha and in this case, uh, Cecily, like it's, it's playing in that sort of sandbox of the ancestral memories, but it's a different kind of story. I sent a message to the, uh, Chromecast Facebook thread earlier and said, uh, I felt like this was a, a short remix of, H Ryder Haggard's she and it it was dawning on me that this story was familiar and then quick drops the Ryder Haggard reference right in there. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not subtle. I think it's it's right there in your face. It's different. Like I said, it's not a remake. It's a remix like this is this is pretty different than the Aisha thing, but it's running along similar tropes, similar ideas. Yeah, that that is all about brawn and bravado like the way that we talked about it this is about uh, i mean the women are the drivers and the empowerers and the solvers of the story it's mm-hmm. it's the love of trudy that allows seamus to to escape like left to his own volition and left to his own uh capability he would have ultimately succumbed to Cecily. And I think that is different than how Haggard wrote, but also there's the, the important figure of Aisha slash Cecily Mm. being, being the consistent like seducer. Yeah. I also feel like she is a little more grandiose, whereas this is a little more, uh, more like a Irish folktale, Irish fairy tale. Yeah. Almost not like a fairy tale. Like we think of it with tangled and everything, but like, like actual Celtic fairies. Yeah. Um, what did you guys think of the uh, references to running water and Undine and, and various water spirits throughout this? Whenever Cecily was on the page, her voice sounded like a mountain stream trickling across the rocks. Um, or it sounded like, uh, or she looked like, um, 
uh, Venus just sort of emerging from the sea. Did you make anything from that? I, I think it's I think it's beautiful, and I think it's a testament. I, I again, I don't know anything about uh, Quicks like writing outside of this story, but I think this story is a clear bit of evidence that that she can write. Man, like that. The it's funny you're tying and you're bringing up the 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 ties between I think like the feminine and water. That was something that, that you brought up. Like the, the mark that I had here was <laughs> like my note. And I have like really shorthand notes as I read over this story over lunch is flowers, girls, sex and vampires. Like, like the, the connection between uh, flowers and the feminine is similarly, I think beautiful. I think, you know, both of those uh, symbols, the flower and the running water are, uh, indicative of the the seductive feminine side right mm-hmm. uh she says uh she being quick um Seamus knew she had on the green dress she had worn at dinner he could see it rippling like the waves of the sea about her feet but it had suddenly become transparent so this is the scene where she's mm-hmm. seducing him and and you know doing a number on him um it uh, let's see Desire had never, uh, sorry, desire such as he had never known swept before, swept over Seamus. He stretched out his hands to her. Not yet, she whispered. Her voice changed again. It was like deep waters falling over silver stones. I am Deidre and you are Seamus. Once before we loved and lived, but we were parted. And these water references just keep popping up and popping up and popping up. And I, I just, I just loved it. Like it's, it's so like I get it. Like I, I know the, mm-hmm. the qualities which she is trying to describe with these water metaphors. Like, yeah, it's, it speaks to me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Jungian, like the archetypes that like that we're playing with here. And so like with that, <laughs> like I noted, we have a couple different costume changes for our characters. And so Cecily changes costumes a couple times over in the story. Right. She wears green and green. And so I wrote here, green clothes plus red hair equals rose slash flower. Like oh, she's, nice. she is like the green. I think there's a connection with water, the way that she's described, but also there's a, there's a connection with, uh, like fecundity and growth and okay. the, the vigor and the relationships with, with uh, that flower symbol also that are coming through. I think it's, I think it's powerful. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's emphasis also, you know, we can talk about uh, the, the perfume, mm-hmm. the, the, the odor that she seduces him with multiple times. There's references to Cecily being a flower, you know, and she's, using that as a like she's an evil orchid right so (laughs) i was about to say what is it about the orchid metaphor like why does uh seamus's friend refer to her as an orchid rather than some other flower orchids are exotic and tropical in all the right ways and uh vaginal i guess vaginal (laughs) what's the lebowski quote does that word make you uncomfortable, Does it make Jeffrey? You uncomfortable, Jeffrey. I mean, I think that it makes Jim uncomfortable. He's uncomfortable by her. He can't quite pin it down, but he's got the he's got the man fear because she is so powerful and has control. She's not 
Trudy. Trudy Rose, that's Trudy's last name, is a bit more earthy. And she's not necessarily like cherubic, but she is, uh, she's a little, she's more down to earth. You would want to take Trudy home to mama. Uh, and, and you would be a little bit uncomfortable with how, how strong willed and witchy Cecily would be. I think there's, I think there's something there. And I think that the, the emphasis on the orchid is definitely tied to the exotic and the the vaginal as, as john says but yeah i i, I agree with those <laughs> points but also uh aren't a lot of tropical orchids parasitic yep. right like we're getting these shades that that something is going on with cecily like she's she's not just a uh, a thorny rose that might hurt you she might actually be lethal right. and jim says oh she's a mystery woman all right and i wish trudy had never met her Trudy's like a beautiful rose blooming in the sunshine, and that malt bee wench is one of those orchids that hang from trees in South America. Exotic, gorgeous, but they draw living things into their mouths for food. Attract them by the strange perfume they send forth. I don't know if that's quite right. No, no, no we're we're, con- <laughs> we're a horticulturalist. Yeah. We're, we're conflating orchids and like uh, pitcher plants here. <laughs> but uh, but the sentiments there, right? Right. And, uh, I think. Oh. I think also, I mean, there's the vampire motif that's pulled up over and over again, and and, and orchids can be like epiphytic and parasitic. Right? Exactly, that's something yes. that comes up too. So there's a confounding of uh, women, uh, this flower symbol, like their sex and their seduct- seductive slash vampiric nature. That's layers, man. There's a lot of stuff in here, uh, and so. I don't know. Kudos to, to Dorothy quick for putting all this stuff together, man. It's, it, it was really a, a fun story. I like that. It didn't, that it was fairly intimate. It's basically a house party. It's, yeah. it's, uh, Hey man, you know, the, 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 the girl next door that you've never thought of, but anything but a sister, she's got the major like hottie hotties for you. And we know that you love her too. And then you're the blinders are off. Hey, let's go to a party. And then there's the, there's the, the seductress that's there. You've got the femme fatale and the girl next door, and they're sort of vying for this guy's soul. Like, that's essentially the story that's played out here, only it's with the overlaying of uh, ancestral memory, memories or reincarnation and, like, Irish myth, which is pretty cool. Could you do a comic ver- version of this using the Archie characters? <laughs> no, really. That's like, cool. like, Betty is Trudy, and Veronica is Cecily, and uh, Jem is Jughead. Right, and Seamus uh, no, is Archie. No, the redhead? She, uh, Blossom, Cheryl. She would have to be Cecily, wouldn't she? Well, you uh, would take well, like uh, I guess like the like Betty though, right? Yeah, yeah. Or uh, Sabrina. I think, has, I think it has to be Betty yeah. or Veronica or Sabrina. No, it's got to be <laughs> Betty or Veronica. Yeah, man. just blew my mind, dude. <laughs> but, but that is the dichotomy. Okay, and so the other, like another comment, like like we're hitting the. It, I have like three different things, and so we've already talked on the reincarnation slash ancestral memories. We talked about the symbols of water and, 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 and flowers, but I have here, uh, Eve plus Lilith. Cause there's a direct Ooh. description there of, of, uh, Cecily is both Eve and Lilith. And I put in, I put equals virgin plus whore. Like there's the, uh, and it's oversimplistic here, this dichotomy between, uh, the virgin and the whore as like these archetypes, but it's so well, 
describe the Betty or Veronica, the that kind of manifestation here of 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 the 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 sexy feminine persona. So we're not talking about the crone. We're talking about the maiden. Right. So this is on. So uh, we'll include a link to the story in the show notes. And this is actually a scan of the issue of Weird Tales that we we were able to pull down from archive.org. So this is on page 13 of that PDF says she stood a little way from him and Seamus could no longer see the swirling chiffon of her dress. He could only see her lush nudity, which was no longer that of a statue, but of a vibrantly living woman. She shook her head and her hair fell about her in a red gold flame. Eve. She was Eve, the mother of all uh, living and Lilith, the serpent woman, both in one. It's (laughs) Dorothy's a woman. She's writing from a from a feminine perspective, but I think it's interesting that she's writing like this is the the dude that wants to like have his cake and eat it too. Ultimately, yeah. he mm-hmm. wants both like the the virgin and the whore wrapped up, and in Cecily, it's totally the the sexy side that's like seducing him, but yet he's he's got that fidelity to Trudy, and I don't know, it's. Trudy in the streets, Cecily in the the sheets. sheets. Uh, But there's also this layer of Cecily using physical force to coerce him, right? Like she wraps her hair around his neck later, which generates the titular witch's mark around his throat. Uh, And, and she has him in her clutches. Like it's, it is, uh, this is the, the image that's conjured earlier uh, scientific accuracies uh, or not of the orchid plants or, or, or the parasitic plants drawing prey to That's them. That's a good like, point. I she didn't has him. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he's able to resist uh-huh. just by the, uh, the, the sudden appearance of his buddy Jim, right? Like he's giving in it's, it's over for, for Seamus. Luckily, Jim, big Jim shows up. <laughs> he is described as being big, right? Like he's six. Yeah, he's a tall feller. <laughs> big Jim. One of the other sort of mythological things hitting on the Lilith Eve sort of expression here is that at one point he compares her to Undine yeah. or to an Undine. Right. And just looking into some of that, these are elemental beings that were first sort of mentioned by Paracelsus, who was an alchemist. But then there's also this breakdown of them into nereids, limnads, naiads, and mermaids. Okay. And very water-oriented beings, and they apparently are constantly associated with forest pools and waterfalls and all the things that we see in the story. And they need to marry a human in order to gain their soul. So I thought Hmm. that was an interesting layer that uh, perhaps explains the motivations of this witch a little bit better than just pure lust and everything it seems like there's an underlying factor of maybe she is a a nymph a naiad and she needs to marry oh what's his face uh seamus in order to to gain her soul and she's been chasing him through the decades trying to do so but uh, an interesting little factoid about them is that if the man is unfaithful he is fated to die so you got to get rid of trudy in order to make sure that things stay copacetic i guess so there's head nods though that Dorothy throws out throughout the story, and I think that like that's a cool thing. Like over and over again, there's references to vampires and and uh, 
Cecily herself claims to be a Hungarian uh, immigrant, or or she's from Hungary. She mm-hmm. says that, and Arthur Vampire is from Hungary. He thinks to himself, <laughs> "She's not a vampire. She's right. not a a traditional witch. She really is like the Fey folk. Like that's what's that's what's revealed here, right? Or a succubus, right? right? Like like she has to have his soul, and the way that she is laying the trap that she's going to use to snare him." is through sexy times. Yeah. So so I I'm thinking about the relationship between like werewolves and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like you can in in uh uh in the Stephen King uh dance macabre like he talks about the the monster tropes and he basically argues that the werewolf and the Jekyll Hyde are the same monster right i think what we're getting at here is a similar uh type of not necessarily confounding like it's an intentional like they're the same archetype that's getting wrapped up here the succubus and uh perhaps like the dryad like they're the same thing only with with different like uh with like a different like paint job, yeah. <laughs> like you, you know, you pay, you uh, you spray paint it one way, and it looks like oh, it's a werewolf. You spray paint it another way, oh, it's Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. You can do the same thing with dryads and the succubus and the vampire. Uh, it's it's the life stealer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird that a woman would write women as such. I guess, although maybe yeah. it's counterbalanced with Trudy, who is sort of a life giver. The other category we often force women characters yeah, into that's a good point yeah i guess so but I, I guess also like i've been thinking about this like we present of course our podcast from the perspective of three dudes and i've been listening to oh what's the name of the show john you listen to it too with ben blacker is it the writers panel i don't know that one okay hang on just one second Yeah, the writer's panel with Ben Blacker. And he is a writer. He's a comic book author. He is um, uh, publishing a uh, comic through Vertigo Comics called Hex Wives, which which is about witches. And uh, he's had on his podcast some um, panels from various comic cons where he gets together. So the panelists on this one were uh, Jill Thompson, uh, the creator of Scary Godmother, Valerie Curry, who is, uh, she's in the new Blair Witch movie, um, the latest one. Um, editor Heather Antos from Redlands and Zoe Quinn, um, who's doing another witchy book from Vertigo. And they just talk about witches, like from, from their standpoint, their perspectives. Some of them are practicing witches. Um, and they make the point in one of these panels that, you know, uh, women can be bad too, right? Like men can be bad. Women can be bad. And just because Dorothy quick is a woman writer, that doesn't mean that she might not write a sexy, seductive woman who is powerful and has some sort of, you know, um, evil plan. Like that's not necessarily out of the cards. I think, Yeah. you know, does that, am I being clear about what I'm trying to say? I don't know if I am. Yeah. Like that she, 
she's not painting women into a corner. She's telling the story she wants to tell. Yeah. 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 With, with this powerful, sexy, evil lady as her uh, antagonist. And to talk about this sort of dichotomy between our two female characters versus perhaps like Howard's, I don't know, like Zuthul of the Dusk. I, I like that story. It just keeps coming up in my head as, mm. as a reference point. You get the, the sexy uh, seductress versus the more... Uh, she's not necessarily virginal. She's, but she's she's with with Conan. Like, there's at least here, like both characters are empowered, and there's like Trudy again saves the day, and I know that that's the case too that plays out in Zuthul of the Dusk. But I like the way that this plays out. Uh, it seems that there's, I don't know, there's empowerment of, for for both of the female characters within the story. I think so. So question though, did <laughs> I'm talking about this. Did Seamus and Trudy, did, did, did Seamus marry Trudy while she was like passed out? No, she wakes up. I think she okay. wakes up. She, Isn't she wakes it her, up to like, no. say I do. Right. Is it it's her, her idea? idea to go it's, to the, okay. Yeah, okay I think okay, it's her okay. idea. Uh, yeah. She's, she's like out and then yeah, comes right. to, and they're like, Hey, we got to go get hitched real, real quick. Hang on. I mean, not only is she out, he, he choked her out during <laughs> yeah, right. the final power struggle between Cecily and Trudy. Right. Uh, what did you think of this whole red hair angle as somebody who's <laughs> raising a red haired daughter? Yeah. Uh, I thought that there was, I had never heard of the red haired vampire connection. I had to look into that a little bit. And then I found out that red hair apparently has a lot of connotations around the world. Uh, in weird, weird ways that I had never heard of before. Apparently, it was a quick way of visually setting Jewish people apart in plays uh-huh. and books and paintings and all kinds of interesting things. Which um, doesn't really make a lick of sense to me. I've not, no. I've not grown up amidst a, a strong like uh, Jewish like component within any community, like in terms of just uh, that like genetic background but i don't make that connection it's it's a weird thing that 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 this is an identifier it it seems like it's a shorthand that that uh was used that wasn't necessarily grounded in anything it was just like a hey this is an easy way to cast somebody is looking different it It sounds like something borat would say (laughs) right (laughs) good point (laughs) Uh, I, I just thought it was interesting in this story that the witch has red hair and the vampire has red hair and there's still all sorts of weird connotations with that nowadays in terms of women with red hair. I thought specifically of, and it kind of plays into the Betty and Veronica thing about Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy. Okay. And Gwen Stacy being kind of the Trudy. Cecily would be Mary Jane. Yeah. The kind of like wild woman. Yeah. That tips Peter Parker away. And it's Gilligan's Island too, right? Ginger. And, uh, who's the other one? Who's the, who's the good girl? But Ginger is the, is the the diva right that seems right i've never seen gilligan's island confession time <laughs> i'm so disappointed in myself so yeah it's it's ginger and then marianne she's the uh the the girl next door type right so ginger's the diva and and marianne's the girl next door so we could definitely make that connection between like that that dichotomy with like cecily and trudy and the the story that we're talking about here as well as like betty and veronica i mean it's a, it's a simplified series like it's an archetype that we can just come back to this division right yeah so uh 
what else guys we need to talk about uh like i, I want to talk about the final stinger the last sentence or two of the story uh but beyond beyond that maybe as a closer sort of statement what else do we have to get at uh i think my question maybe should come after that oh, okay yeah what about you john What was it again? So, do you, what, what else? Do you have any other like talking points that we want to get into here? Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. no. The the thing I want to talk about was the red hair, <laughs> <laughs> the persecution of the redheads. Yeah, an, an item near and dear to your heart, presumably. It's, it's, it is. I mean, I it's it's less near and dear now that it's it's largely absent from the top of my 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 head because I have a bald pate. But uh, my beard's got a little red in it. You got a twinge of the ginge. I got <laughs> it burns me. I I'm I'm the daywalker though, man. I've got the I've got the freckles and the the more dusky like redhead thing going I, on. I think I saw a, a high school photograph of you on Facebook the other day. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's my, a good one. My long red locks and mm-hmm. yeah, my uh, my jovial expression. You were quite happy. I'm. The weight of the world had not yet crushed your spirits. <laughs> it was a couple of years coming. <laughs> senior senior skip day. It was it was still good times. <laughs> That's not totally true, but it was it was fairly good. That was a good day, though. I had a lot of fun that day. That picture it, it brought up some memories. Uh, so my my comment, like I, I like that the story thinks that you're i think that i like that dorothy like kind of sets you up for the happy the happy ending and then says yeah but maybe he's not happy for the rest of his life and maybe our focal character seamus has as that little has that little like a twinge of regret because by god cecily was the seductress that witch truly has carved out a little spoonful of his heart i like that <laughs> The rusty spoonful. You're not. Ju- you're not going to be able to have total happiness, man. No, he he is going to periodically throughout his life think about what might have been. Uh, but if he had kissed her, wouldn't he have died? Like that's what we learned. Mm. Uh, so he he's not completely rational. I like that. There's the the blighted portion of the apple here, though. Like if if Seamus is the apple, like he's got a he's got a a root spot on him. That's going to stay there. Like he, he can never be totally whole because he's been like touched by the witch. R O O N T. He's right. I like that. And I think it's, it's ultimately an indication of the, uh, the, the horrific elements of the story. So I'm setting that up for, yeah, for you, Josh. You, you led into it nicely. So what is it about this story? We, we picked this story completely blind. None of us had heard of Dorothy quick nor had we read this story. No, yet. Josh, you you sought for a variety of like witch stories across the weird tales, right? And yeah. you kind of like said, here's the here's the net that I broadcast, here's a series of stories, and we latched on to a handful of them just on the basis of the the synopsis, and this was one we picked. Yeah. And so we picked it largely because it's a witch story written by a woman and we wanted to read that perspective. Um, and the word "witch" is in the title. Yes, so that made it. That <laughs> but, made it, and we could get a copy of it, which helped. So I'll make the point though here, and this was so. The title, "The Witch's Mark," 
was deceptive to me, and I was not anticipating the witch's mark to be on the the mail, nor mm. was I anticipating it to be what it was, because of course, the 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 mark of the witch is something that is very different. What is the mark of the witch? So, like a, a supernumerary nipple, <laughs> it okay. would be a mark of the witch, or perhaps it would be a mole. Moly moly. A hairy on mole. A or hairy ex- mole. Extra finger, is that one? An extra finger, you might have something like that. Something that's that's abnormal, maybe red hair, could be a, <laughs> a mark of the witch. Like, these are things that are indicative of someone being, you know, an outcast and, and a, you know, socially sort of persecuted individual. And so... In the case of, like, an extra nipple, <laughs> it was a means of like suckling and there's some connection there with like the devil and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But it was more of a, an indicator, like an external indicator of like the affiliation with the devil. And, and that that person is a witch. Yeah. But in this one, it is the mark that the witch places on her target. That she's bewitching. It's almost like the black spot. Like if you're, if you're, you know, crossing some pirates and they end up giving you a contract that's like smears your hand with a black mark or they give you a, an actual piece of paper with a black spot, you're marked and you're damned. It was almost that. Like, it's a different kind of mark. It's like from the Universal Wolfman movie when you, if you're a werewolf, you see the pentagram on the hand of the person who is your next victim, right? That's right. I wonder if the witch's mark is sort of the dent or the singe on his soul left by Cecily and this Ooh. burning desire he may still have for her. Look at you. Good that's, call. That, that is, that's... Absolutely. Yep. That is it. Yes. It's not the thing on his neck like they thought. Like it is the fact that the footprints that she left on his heart and his soul and in his mind will never erode. That's deep. Good job, Dorothy Quick. <laughs> I got to say, based on this one story, I'm a Dorothy Quick fan and I'm I'm glad we picked this story to read uh, for Cromtober. So... Yeah. Good job us, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> it was it was spooky in an unanticipated way. I mean the cover to Weird Tales doesn't necessarily indicate the content either. No. It's misleading. Yes. Uh it's a cool Brundage cover, but it's still misleading. Uh so I, I mean this really was a cool story to me, and I like that it turned into like the dinner party kind of scene that what we got here was Archie being pulled a couple different ways and seduced <laughs> at this like rip roaring uh, prohibition dinner party or like post prohibition. I don't know. That's the kind of that's that's in my mind. It was totally uh, F Scott Fitzgerald style Gatsbyan Yeah. Party. Well, they're having cocktails, right? Yeah. But, but eyeballs all around, yeah. Eyeballs, and then they go for the wardrobe change, and it's time for dinner. Yeah, uh, it's just such a it's such a cool set piece. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's not stretched over days; it's stretched over hours, minutes. Yeah, even like, and that was the first time that he met Cecily, and that was the second time. Like those little writing flourishes on her part too, I think, are a testament to. Uh, a skilled hand. I, I'm curious to know when this story came out within the larger bibliography Uber. that she put together. Yeah. Her, it's Uber. just, it seems this well, was, this was a deftly written story. 
I can tell you that as far as her Weird Tales output, uh-huh. she wrote one, two, three, three stories before this one. Okay. And the one before this one also had the cover. And the title of the story was Strange Orchids. Okay. So that's the other cover that I was familiar with. And mm-hmm. the fact that it was the, the title was Orchid made me return to the the flower motif or symbol. So it seemed like she must be playing in this sandbox quite a bit. I don't know if that's the case, but maybe this was on her head. Maybe she was a total like botanist and like into flowers. Maybe. Uh, maybe she was playing up the association between women and uh, flowers. Right. Um, so I did email our friend Bobby Derry, our friend and Weird Tales guru, Bobby Derry. Yeah. Um, and ask him for information about Dorothy Quick. And we discussed Margaret Brundage and, and the fact that she illustrated the, the covers of so many of Dorothy Quick's stories. And I mentioned that uh, I said, um, it seems like Margaret Brundage did the first, uh, did her first cover for a Weird Tales a magazine for a Dorothy quick story. And uh, it turned out, no, that's not true. But what is actually true is that Brundage's first cover for any magazine was for Oriental stories. That was the spring 1932 uh, issue. And the story that had the cover of that issue was Dorothy quicks scented gardens. Oh, so I had that same sort of, Motif. Motif, right. And and I had, he says, the right factoid, but the wrong story. Uh, so the, the really cool thing here to me is that Margaret Brundage did her first cover art for a Dorothy Quick story. And yet Dorothy Quick, largely unremembered by fans of pulp stories, mm-hmm. Margaret Brundage, one of the superstars. That's cool. I'm glad we're, uh, I'm glad we're talking talking through this content. I mean, this is, this was a fun story to talk about. There was more to talk about with this single story. I mean, I I know we spent length talking about sea curse and black cat in the last episode. This was a longer story. There was more content here. There was more things that we were able to, to mill out of it. We could have probably spent a little bit more time with the black cat and getting into the symbol type discussions that we're getting into here. Uh, but I like that we were able to take a single story and really get into it. This is cool. Yeah. So what else guys? We'll all read more Dorothy quick after this. Yeah, I hope so. I'd like to, uh, but like we said, I think finding her stuff, uh, and accessing it is going to be a bit of a challenge. I think you really would need to focus on poking around like the Amazon pulp mega packs and this and that, and looking at those story collections just to try to snag stuff that way. So I'm going to buy original weird tales on eBay and then scan it all and make my own Amazon mega pack. Man, who knows even what this January 1938 issue is worth. I don't know. Like the, you know, yeah, the, good point. The, the last page of, of the Dorothy quick story, of course has a Lovecraft poem. Uh, like this, these, these, uh, these issues were just chock full of, of materials. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're all from this era. 
pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah. Think. But we definitely will link to the PDF yeah. uh, of this uh, this issue of Weird Tales. Cool. All right, guys. So where are we going from here? Do we got a little bit more Chromtober inside us? We have a little bit more Chromtober inside us because uh, here's the thing. Typically, when we record a Chromcast, we edit it heavily. But tonight, that's different because we want to get this out there quick. Dorothy quick. <laughs> I didn't, even, didn't even think about that. <laughs> uh, because our pal, our fellow Cromrad, our bosom buddy, John, and his family are coming into Kentucky this week. Hey, that's a me. That they're coming to hang out. The stars are right over your old Kentucky home. That's right. They have a line. <laughs> and so such a thing has not happened in October since 2016. So it's been a couple of years. It has been. And I'm so psyched. So we're going to get this episode out to you guys very quick with minimal edits. And then the next thing we're going to do is a campfire uh, fire pit discussion of witches in general. Uh, tell some witch stories. Do some witchy things. Drink some whiskey. Rally together to defeat the witch. Yeah, that. Uh, and uh, as Luke was saying, drink some bourbon. Yeah. I don't know. We might just like cook some s'mores and, and hang out with her. Maybe it turns out that she ain't so bad <laughs> after all. She really was just wanting to bring us along for a fun ride and... We're going we're gonna to want to camp out. Yeah. And the first thing she wanted us to do was read some stories by people that weren't Robert E. Howard. <laughs> I mean, really, that's, that has uh, dramatically shifted the trajectory of our podcast. Yeah. It'll be fun. Uh, join us for, for a little bit more material here in Cromtober. And then, uh, of course, we'll talk about where we're going, what road we're getting into next. That's a, that's a little bit further on down the road. So with that, let's go ahead and close it out here, Josh. We're going to close out with Vanilla Fudge's version of Season of the Witch.
Emerged in a liquid sea of love, shimmering rainbows and silver sky above a looking glass that reflects our past. Tied with seaweed all around, like willows, upside down. You caress my heart, caress my soul, surround my limbs. You laugh. Your love and hold my body fast, and we wake up and sit here thinking, 
thinking about the times we used to have and know they're gone forever we'll never learn As I look over my shoulder What do I see? And as I look over my shoulder There's so many pretty sights to see Cuidado, 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 Las Lamas.